Have a seat, please. John chapter 15. When I was told that this conference was going to be based on that and to select something out of that, I got excited because I always thought that if there was one last message to preach, it should be John 15. It sort of sums up what is all important about the Christian life. Um, I'm going to begin with a, a little story that I was rummaging around the other day. I got it years ago. It seems that this gal was going to visit India, and she had never been to India before. She was from England, and she had agreed to rent a, a cottage that was owned by a schoolmaster, and she was making the arrangements, and she knew that India was very different from England, but there was no mention in the agreement of the rental property that there was a WC in there, and a WC in England is water closet or, or commode, restroom. So she asked the schoolmaster, is there a WC near the house or in the house? So the letter came to the schoolmaster in India, and he didn't know what a WC was. He didn't know English very well, and he thought about WC. What, what could that mean? So uh, he went to the clergyman in town and said, you got to help me. This lady is asking where the WC is located. And they thought about it, and the only thing they could come up with with those initials was West Side Chapel, which is one of the chapels they had close to the property that they were going to rent to her. So they wrote her a letter back with a complete different understanding than what this lady had inquired about. And so imagine the shock when this gal got a letter back from India that said, Dear Madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of pine groves surrounded by lovely trees. Of course, he's thinking of West Side Chapel. It is capable of seating 220 people and is open on Sundays and Thursdays only. As there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I would suggest that you come early, although there is plenty of standing room. This is an unfortunate situation, particularly if you are in the habit of attending regularly. You will no doubt be glad to hear that a good number bring their lunch and make a day of it, while others who can afford to go by car arrive just in time. I would recommend your ladyship to go on Thursdays where there is a piano accompaniment. The acoustics are excellent, and even the most delicate sounds can be heard everywhere. It may interest you to know that my daughter was married in the WC, and it was there she first met her husband. I can remember the rush for seats. There were ten people to every seat, usually occupied by one. It was wonderful to see the expression on their faces. The newest attraction is a bell donated by a resident in the district. It rings each time a person enters. A bazaar is to be held to provide plush seats for all, since the people feel it is long needed. 
My wife is rather delicate, so she can't attend regularly. It's been almost a year since she went last. Naturally, it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall be delighted to reserve the best seat for you, if you wish, where you will be seen by all. And for the children, there is a special time and a place so that they will not disturb the elders. Signed, the schoolmaster. Well, I'll tell you before the end of the night her response to that, but it's amazing how things get twisted. And it's amazing how something so simple can become so complicated. And and ministry is like that. It was intended to be simple. It can become so complicated. You know, we have our plans, we have our ordinations, we have our 501c3s, we have our building plans, and you push all that aside, and what it really gets down to is WC, being with Christ. That is the essence of ministry, is to abide with Him. Well, the disciples had been with Christ for three and a half years, and in John chapter 15, they're in Jerusalem, southwest Jerusalem, somewhere in an upper room celebrating the Passover with him, with Christ at a very unique time. Now, this final night that they are together, this is different than it has ever been before with Jesus and his men. This is sort of like a coach before the game as he preps his team, or like a general before a battle as he preps his soldiers for that final movement on the battlefield. This is called the Upper Room Discourse, as most of you know. It's the longest one ever preached by Jesus, at least the longest message ever on record. And what makes it unique is that there is no crowd for this longest recorded message. There's no big group. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount. It's just Jesus' own men, just just those who have served alongside of him and would soon be commissioned to be that light to the world. And over in John chapter 13, where it begins in verse 1, we read, Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his time had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Now notice this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. These men, these were Jesus' own men. They weren't just men. These were his own. And so this is a very special time and a very special message, not for everybody, but in particular for his own, for his own servants, those who would be soon left with that great commission, all those who labored with Christ. And though John chapter 15 describes the growth of every single believer it has special application to ministers like it did to those disciples, those who are with Christ. Um, you have to understand something about Jesus' concern and care. He cares more for your growth personally than he does for the growth of your church physically. He doesn't care what size the congregation is. He doesn't care if you're on the radio or not. What he cares about for his own is their own personal growth and fruitfulness. And the analogy, most of us know, is the analogy of a vineyard. 
God is the owner, Jesus Christ is the vine, and every believer attached to him, he says, is his branch. And there's basically two types, fruitful and unfruitful. Now, I know we've looked at a few verses already, but let's just take another stab at it, another pass, and read a few verses down, and then we'll go back. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full." And when Jesus broke out with this analogy, and we figure that Jesus did this while he was walking, this upper room discourse wasn't all in the upper room, because the end of chapter 14, uh, Jesus says, arise, let us go from here. So they got up after the supper, and they're probably now walking somewhere from the upper city toward the Kidron Valley, and they could see those terraced hillsides all around Judea with vineyards, grapes. So this is a very common, typical, and understood analogy for that time. He tells them how to have a fruitful life. That's exactly what we want. We want to know how to have a fruitful life in our ministry. Because the purpose of grapes, the purpose of a vineyard, is to bless others, not for itself. Grapes don't grow for themselves. They grow to delight and to feed, and to bless other people. So the idea of fruitfulness is not self-consumption. It's always to reach out to others. And the point is this. If the life of God is in you, then the life of God will flow from you. We've always loved that description of Joseph as given by his father Jacob when he says, Joseph is a fruitful branch or a fruitful bough. A fruitful branch by a well, a tree by a well, whose branches go over the wall so that others can be blessed. Years ago, when I was living down in Huntington Beach, I had a neighbor with a lemon tree, and it was so close to the border of our property that half of his tree extended onto my side, which I thoroughly loved because I had free lemonade all year. That was the law. Whatever grows on my side belongs to me. And so I as a good law-abiding citizen, took all the lemons that I could get on my side. The branches went over the wall. 
the fruitfulness of Joseph was so much that his branches went over the wall. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about four marks of a fruitful pastor. Four marks of a fruitful pastor out of this passage. And the first one is the most important one. And by the way, all of them are connected and all of them are predicated on the previous idea. The first and most important is being connected to Christ. That's mark number one, connected to Christ. The word abide is the key word in this passage. It's mentioned eight times here. Abide. You're connected. It means an individual connection that results in new life. Now, the connection is made for every believer at the new birth, John chapter 3. You get born again, and at that time you get grafted in, as Paul said. And then the new life, the sap of the new life starts flowing through your life. That's where it all begins. But the idea of abiding, the analogy implies intimacy, closeness. Not something austere and distant and professional, but intimate. That's the idea of abiding. Yeah, Branch would never say to the vine, you know, I like you and I appreciate you and I admire you, but I don't want to get too close or be too fanatical. The very word itself implies intimacy. There's a great translation by Kenneth Wiest. The Wiest translation of this, verse 4, says, Maintain a close communion with me and I with you. And in another place, a constant living communion with me and I with you. You know, it is easy to get disconnected in the ministry. We can get connected to so many things that we suddenly find ourselves rather disconnected from what's most important, Christ. We become connected to associations. We become connected to community involvement. And pretty soon we realize I'm so connected and so busy that I've, I've left the first love. I become disconnected. Busyness is a danger in the ministry, the danger of being disconnected. Keith Miller, who's written a number of books, said, and I quote, It has never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in, day-out guts of our business lives and never realize it. Well, fruit is simply the result of abiding. Fruit is the result of a close connection of that branch to the vine. The branch is a worthless piece of wood apart from the attachment to the vine. It's, it's something that Jesus said they just gather up. They don't build anything with it. They just throw it in the fire. It's kindling. So our real value to anyone in this world or in the church is our connection to Christ. That's where the value lies. When a pastor, a pastor's wife, an assistant pastor, a Christian worker is closely, intimately connected with Christ, life will flow into that branch and fruit will come. And your life takes on real significance when you're connected with Him. Fruit is simply the unfolding of life. And one thing you notice about whether it's a vineyard or a lemon tree or an apple tree is that branches don't have to try really hard to do this. There's no real effort involved in their fruit production. You've never seen a, a fruit tree sweat, have you? 
You've never seen a branch go, man, that was tough. No, it's very natural. It's simply the result of a connection. Keep in close contact with Jesus Christ, talk to him, listen to him, and fruit happens. Maybe that ought to be the bumper sticker. Fruit happens. I read a little article from the Associated Press about farming. I just came across it, but it was fascinating, and it it drew for me a great spiritual analogy. It was a test that was done at a school in Iowa, an agricultural school, and um, they wrote this, a hundred bushels of corn from one acre of land require four million pounds of water 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur and other elements. And these are all things man cannot produce. God has to produce every one of these, plus rain and sunshine at just the right amount, just the right time. And so in this study, this is what they came up with at the end. Only 5% of farm production can be attributed to the effort of man. So it is in spiritual making of fruit and being fruitful. It's the work of God. It's not, I'm so talented, I need to do this. Sure, we're involved in the process. God gives gifts and God gives talents and God calls, but the real fruit comes in simply a connection of closeness and intimacy with him. No connection, no fruit. A connection, much fruit. Now, I think a good picture of abiding comes from another passage of Scripture in in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, a whole different analogy now, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, Jesus said. My yoke is easy. Now, the word easy means well-fitting, literally. That would be the best translation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is well-fitting. Ever worn a garment that just fits you perfectly? I was in Dallas about a month ago, and I walked into a store, and I knew that this guy knew. I was looking for a white shirt. That's all I wanted, a white shirt. But this guy knew. He walked right up to me, and he said, you're, you're a 42 long, maybe a 42 extra long. I said, you got it exactly. I said, I'm looking for a white shirt. When I got the shirt and put it on, it fits so well. It's like tailor-made. It's so easy to wear. It's easy-fitting. That's the idea of my yoke is easy. It will fit you perfectly. Now, when they would make yokes in those days, they would first sort of work rough wood around the ox and take measurements, and then the guy would work it and hone it and then bring the ox back and make it fit just tailor-made, just perfect for the ox. And when he was done and it was fitting very closely, they called that an easy yoke. It fits so perfectly. It just fits nicely. That's called an easy yoke. And so the idea of wearing a yoke is to get so close to someone, it involves, again, closeness, proximity, intimacy, and control. That's the idea of a yoke. The farmer controls the oxen by means of a yoke, but it fits so well. It's easy. It's close. 
Now, there's a legend, we don't know if it's true, that says Jesus made the best yokes in all of Galilee. Again, we don't know if that's true or not, but there's a legend that says people would, would go for miles to get one of his yokes. I can just see the sign over his door, my yokes fit perfectly. Easy yokes. Now, why be yoked to Jesus? Why get that close to him? Again, what Jesus said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The reason we want to get close to him and abide is because the closer we get to him and then we read and we watch and we're in fellowship with him, we learn from him. We learn how he reacts to people. We, we learn how much he depended upon the relationship with his father. We learn how to uh, treat people who mistreat us. We learn how to forgive. We learn how to love. We learn what's important. As we watch him, as we are close to him, we learn how to pray. We learn how he handled pressure. All of that is abiding. So mark number one of a fruitful pastor is his connection with Christ. He's connected to Christ. The second thing, and it's in the text, is that he is cared for by God. He's cared for by God. I love the analogy. I am the true vine. My father, verse 1, is the vine dresser. In verse 2, one of the things the father does is he prunes. We're not particularly fond of that word because of what it implies. In verse 8, again, the father is involved. My father is glorified if you bear much fruit. In other words, this whole thing is a picture of God as a caregiver, somebody who's really uh, interested in tending his garden, and he's personally involved, and he does it with a sense of pride and joy. If you've ever known somebody who's into gardening, it's not a chore. It's not a chore. It's a love, right? They have the right tools. They have the lingo down. They love to go outside and do it. They love to tell you what they know about it. They take pride in what they're working with. Now, I'm not good at plants. My mom and dad, they were great. I have a brown thumb, not a green thumb. I kill things. But somebody who's really into it takes great pride and joy in it. That's the idea of the the caregiver, the father. Every believer... And let's make it more personal. Every Christian worker, every pastor or pastor's wife, everyone who is connected to Christ is cared for by God. God looks at you, and you're his personal project. He looks at you very carefully and with a sense of pride and joy and wants to fashion you and bring fruit from you. And so he superintends. He prunes. Somebody once said, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And that's where verse 2 comes in. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Now, don't misread that. It doesn't say he turns you into a prune or he makes you a prune-faced believer, but he simply cleans you up. Katharizo is the word used here. It means to cleanse, as Don said, to lift up, to clear the branch of excess foliage and dead wood, stuff that gets in the way. Just clear it out. Clean it up. Katharizo, catharsis. He prunes it. See, a branch, if you leave it to itself, again, this isn't by personal experience. This is just by reading and talking to people who've done it well. 
But uh, you leave a branch alone, and it can produce so much, it overproduces, but not the quality that is necessary. It'll produce many clusters, but they'll be inferior. And so somebody who's into uh, vineyards or even flowers will prune to concentrate the sap and the growth on certain particular bunches or flowers to get the highest quality. There was a flower show, and a gardener was displaying his prize chrysanthemums, and he said this is how he did it. We concentrate all of the strength of the plant in one or two blooms only. If we would allow it to bear all of the flowers it could, none would be worth showing. If you want a prized specimen, you must be content with a single chrysanthemum instead of a whole score. So we're connected to Christ. We get cared for by God. How does he do it? He purges, he prunes, he removes all of the things that we would allow to live. Blossoms come up, blossoms of sin, blossoms of habit, blossoms of self, things that get in the way of real growth, and God goes after them, doesn't he? God goes after bad habits, God goes after bad attitudes, certain activities that don't please him. He goes after that because he wants the best. He wants prized chrysanthemums or prized clusters of grapes. Our branches can get full of ourselves, and God loves us way too much to leave us the way he found us, and so he prunes. And understand his purpose isn't because he has a mean streak and he gets off on seeing you suffer. It's not like when you're in pain crying out, he goes, ha, 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 they deserve it. No, the real purpose is because he wants to see more fruit. God's really concerned about you personally not your size of your ministry or your ministry in particular, as much as you as his child. Now, there's something I've learned, and I suspect you've learned it too. We have to be really careful not to assign something as bad because it doesn't feel good to us. Well, that, that's bad. Be careful. Some of the worst feeling things are the best things for you. You could look at the life of Joseph for that. He was sold as a slave. He was taken to Egypt. He was in prison. He was falsely accused. Bad, 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 bad. Is that how he viewed it? At the end of his life, he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring as it is this day and to save many people alive. He saw... Those bad things is actually good ways that God was furthering his fruitfulness, pruning him for more fruit. Now, I wonder if these branches could speak when the vine dresser is pruning them. What do you think a branch would say when the knife is coming at them and and goes into the meat of that wood and starts slicing? If they could speak, you don't love me anymore, vine dresser. You've forsaken me. Ouch, this hurts. You, you couldn't love me at all if you would allow this to happen. Not understanding at all the motivation of the vine dresser. Paul put it so beautifully. No chastening, he said in Hebrews 12, seems to be joyful for the present. It is grievous, but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Boy, I love it when Terry and Nancy sing and play. They're on that piano. I love that. There's just a sweet spirit. And the way he plays the piano, 
But you know, a piano, there's 243 strings, I believe, in a grand piano, and they exert a force on the metal harp that's in it of 40,000 pounds. A piano is proof that beauty can come out of great tension. It's, it's tense inside that piano. I mean, those things are high strung. But such harmony and such beauty comes out of it. And so God knows how exactly how to weave your life situation and circumstances together to get the best beauty, the best notes, the greatest harmony and melody. He prunes. So, marks of a fruitful pastor, connected to Christ, cared for by God. A third, and part and parcel of this, is competent in prayer. Competent in prayer. Verse 7, John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What a great promise. And, and, and here's why. It's because you realize now, as you're connected to Christ and cared for by God, and you go through enough life situations, that you're absolutely dependent upon the vine and the vine dresser. Your life is so dependent on Him. You realize that um, what you pray for is going to, at this point in your life, be a result of what He wants anyway. You're so tuned into His will, what you pray for is what He wants. You know, there's a great promise in Psalm, I think, 37. If you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. And how many times have we heard people twist that and say, you just delight yourself in Jesus and then He'll give you your heart's desire. That's not what it means. I think what it means is God will actually give you desires that are His desires. All of a sudden, you want things and desire things and pray for things, and God planted those desires in your heart. They never were there before. And now that they're there, you ask for them. And God is saying, I'm glad you asked. I've been wanting to do that for a long time here. You're abiding now. You put the yoke on. You're close. You're controlled by him. There's an intimacy. And you, you get it. As pastors, we pray every week. In front of our congregation, we, we bow our heads and we pray publicly, usually before a message, after a message. And the Lord has been speaking to me more and more just about my daily, private, continual, abiding relationship of prayer with Him and what that ought to be like. I was... Uh, Thumbing through Charles Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Students, in preparation for this, I thought, I want to see what, get a fresh read on that guy again on, when it comes to prayer. He said something so beautiful, I, I brought it out. Charles Spurgeon shows the link between abiding and prayer, and he said, habitual communion with God must be maintained or our prayers will be vapid and formal. If there be no melting of the glacier high up in the ravines of the mountains, there will be no descending rivulets to cheer the plain. Private prayer is the drill ground for more public exercises. Neither can we long neglect it without being out of order when before our people. Now, he sort of breaks this down for us. There's, there's a few stages as I see it. First of all, 
if you abide in me. We, we abide in Christ. We maintain that constant living communion, that intimate fellowship with him. Number two, uh, he abides in us, verse 4. Christ abides in us. That's where we put the yoke on. That's where we let him control us. I think that's a daily exercise. We open our eyes and we say to the Lord, Lord, uh, as even maybe as you're getting dressed, as I put my clothes on, may this be as the yoke fits so easily. You're in complete control and I maintain a closeness with you throughout this day. Abide in him. He abides in you. And then also it says in that verse, verse 7, his word abides in us. We're always getting direction for our personal lives, for our ministry, as well as our ministry to the people from the Word of God. And when we do that, when we're soaked in the Word, well, you know, when you're soaked in the Word, you pray Bible prayers. You're praying according to the will of the Father, and you can have absolute confidence that He's going to give you what you pray for because those principles are in you. I read a fascinating story of a family that was caught in a tornado down in the South. And when the tornado blew through the house and started shaking the windows, this woman got so scared, and she started shouting out, N-E-M, N-E-M, N-E-M. Well, what was she quoting? Wizard of Oz. She had so internalized the Wizard of Oz that when a tornado came, out came the words N-E-M. Well, that's sort of how Christians should react in trials, in life situations. We have so internalized His word, it so abides in us that immediately what comes out is a biblical response. His word abides in us. You'll have or you'll be given exactly what you pray for. That's the third mark of a fruitful pastor. And the fourth is that you're contented in life. I like this. And I think they all hinge on the first one. You're connected to Christ. It comes at new birth. It continues through your life. It's where everything rests and everything is predicated and hinged on that connection. And because you're connected to him, you're cared for by God. He superintends you with great joy and pleasure. And so he prunes you because he wants more fruit. As a result of that connection of you and him and him and you and his word in you, your prayers take on a very dramatic and effective change. And then finally... A contentment. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. Here's the whole reason I'm telling you this, disciples. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. The reason you get so content is because you realize it's not about me. (laughs) The ministry isn't about me. This life isn't about me and, and my pleasure but it's about him. It's not about me. It's not about my talent. This church and this effectiveness of my ministry is really about him. You know, we do ourselves a tremendous favor when we realize that the reason for the success, to whatever degree, is just because God has been gracious to us and because he wanted to do it. And the the way we'll make it through is the same way. Abiding in him, resting in him. I love the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You know the story of the menorah and that that 
automated menorah where the oil was just automatically pouring in and he was just watching this whole thing. And it was the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And when you realize that about your life and ministry, it takes a load off and you go, oh, yeah, there's such joy there. Because you realize the fruit comes from the connection. And the connection brings God's superintending care. It makes my communication with God more effective. And all of that brings a contentment and a real joy. Now think about that. I've spoken these things to you that you might have joy. Maybe one of the first questions you'd ask in hearing that is, you, you mean in the midst of pruning, I'm going to have joy? Yeah, think about this. These words were spoken of by someone who would in a few hours be arrested, beaten, and killed, and he knew it. He said, I want to tell you a lot about my joy, and I want my joy in you. And he spoke these words to disciples who their whole lives would be dogged and persecuted and even martyred. But he speaks about his joy in the midst of all of that. I hope that joy marks and permeates your life and your ministry. I'll tell you why. Because historically, people have looked at the ministry as something that's supposed to be really tough. And ministers should kind of look like this, angry, burdened, mad. What's wrong? I'm in the ministry. (laughs) No joke. Seriously. I was in a store one time. I was in line. And we, we were just talking. And this lady said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And she took a step back. And she looked at me and she said, I'm so sorry. I said, what are you sorry about? It's the most wonderful thing in the world. But so long historically, the ministry in Christianity has been associated with long, dark robes and dour faces. And I found uh, something Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote. He said, I would have entered the ministry if clergymen that I knew didn't look and act so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson said in his diary, as if it was an extraordinary event, he said, I went to church today, and I'm not depressed. (laughs) Who wrote those rules? God didn't. I get tired of hearing God's ministers talk, oh, it's so burdensome, it's so hard. Hey, my yoke is easy if it's well-fitting. My burden is light. One of the most attractive things is a happy pastor. Our pastor, Chuck Smith, when he enters a room, it's like his smile is 500 watts. The room lights up. And it doesn't matter, I've noticed, what's going on in Chuck's personal life. It doesn't matter the pruning. He's got the joy of the Lord. It's a very attractive thing to see. Just that, all right, (laughs) filled with joy. How do you represent Christ? How do you represent the ministry? Hard, tough, I don't know why I'm called to this, or the joy of the Lord as your strength? Well, I mentioned that English woman who wrote that letter and got that weird response. I didn't tell you the rest of the story. She got the letter. She was so excited to go to India. When she read the letter about the WC, she fainted on the spot 
and canceled her trip to India and didn't go. That's the rest of the story. So, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Take it all the way back to WC, with Christ. Everything else in your life, when it feels like it's taking up energy and pressing in on you, nothing is more important than being with Christ, abiding in Him. When you're with Him, your ability to produce fruit is unlimited. It's unlimited. In Albuquerque, we have, we have a lot of beach and no ocean. So what they've done to compensate <laughs> is they have this thing called the Albuquerque Aquarium. And they have, uh, they have sea creatures there. It's the people who never see the ocean get to see what, what these things look like. And, and there's a huge shark tank. It's the, it's the center attraction. And I was in there. I love watching them when there's glass there. <laughs> I love watching them that close when there's glass. And I was watching them, and I was noticing through the glass their activity and their size. And I talked to someone who's in charge, and he said, you know, there's something interesting about these sharks is that they will grow to the size of their environment. So he said, you could have, if you have a small enough aquarium, you can have a full-grown, mature adult shark that's six inches long. And it's a full-grown shark. If you then let it out in the ocean at the appropriate time in its life cycle, it will grow to its eight-foot typical capacity. It follows its environment. I thought, now that's interesting because I've met some of the cutest six-inch Christians (laughs) and six-inch pastors who are just content to swim in just little surroundings and, and never explore the ocean. And I'm not speaking about sizes of ministries or radio or television opportunities, none of that. Because as I read the text, the real growth isn't top growth, it's root growth. That's the real growth. And when we allow ourselves, by a connection with Him and rejoicing in the care that He gives, and in that connection, that powerful communication of prayer... All of that bringing a sense of joy and contentment. The fruit is unlimited. And, verse 8, the Father is glorified. So how about a larger arena this year? And again, the right kind of arena I'm speaking about. Fruitfulness. Deep growth. Abiding. And let just the joy of the Lord attract whom the Lord would bring. Heavenly Father, we desire what you desire for us. You are glorified when we bring much fruit. And as has already been noted, fruit, more fruit, and then much fruit. Lord, some of us are going through such deep, dark hurtful times, we can only figure you must really love us a lot and care for us a lot to superintend us with with that kind of knife activity so to cut away the branches to make us more fruitful. Lord, those things that feel so bad, I pray that we might see them tonight in a new light as being something very good, that you are sovereign 
You are omniscient. You know everything. You are omnipotent. You can do everything. And yet you have chosen to apply the knife to certain areas of our life that are very deep and very painful. At the same time, we have to admit, very clarifying. And so, Lord, I pray that as we feel the knife, rather than wanting to move further away from you, we would sink deeper into you and maintain that constant living communion with you. And through that connection, bring fruit. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you for your ways. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be spent with pleasing you, glorifying you, as Jesus said here, and ministering and blessing other people. And, Lord, I pray that the joy of the Lord would truly be our strength as we realize whatever fruit comes, it's not by might or by power, but by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.